0: is we're looking at the book of Daniel, you'll know that our theme is faith that works. So that's our theme, our overarching theme of the book of Daniel, faith that works. You see, Daniel is an example of somebody whose faith really worked for him. You know, it was living, it was active, it wasn't something that was compartmentalized to just one area or time of his life. But Rather, Daniel's faith encompassed every area of his life, every day of the week. His faith was living and active. It was faith that worked for him. But as well as that, he had faith uh, at work, if you like. And as you read through the book of Daniel, uh, much of it is an account of uh, Daniel's working life. Uh, of what it was like when he went to the office on Monday to Friday, what it was like to, uh, to work for some rather crazy kings, actually. And, uh, but he had a, had a faith that he took to work. It wasn't just sort of left on the side when he got up in the morning. It was something that was very central to every part of his life. In, in fact, it was God's blessing, his anointing, that got Daniel to the position of influence that he ended up in. And so it was very central to who Daniel was. I guess you'd you'd say the same about Joseph, wouldn't you? There's another example of somebody whose God's anointing and God's blessing uh, actually got that got them to their position of influence, to their position of uh, leadership. I was uh, in a meeting this week, and uh, I was uh, hearing from a guy called Martin Charlesworth. Now, you probably don't know who he is, but he leads uh, a New Frontiers Church in Shrewsbury and has done for a number of years, uh, Barnabas Community Church. Martin's a good guy, and he's recently been asked by the, uh, the New Frontiers UK teams. this is the family of churches that we're part of, he's been asked by the, the team that serve our churches in the UK to take on responsibility for representing us as a family of churches in the sort of national social action and political arena. And uh, So he's recently taken on this responsibility and uh, I was with him this week and he was talking about a meeting he's going to this week coming on, on Tuesday. He's been invited to a meeting in Whitehall with a government minister who has uh, said uh, that this government minister wants to meet some representatives of the new churches. Because he's heard about these new churches, but doesn't know much of what they are. You know, he's heard about the Anglicans and the Baptists and the Methodists. And and he can sort of understand that well. But he's heard about these new churches that that are doing stuff. Uh, And he wants to hear about what's going on uh, in in our sort of church. So Martin, together with representatives from other new church streams like Vineyard and Salt and Light and Pioneer and others, uh, are going down to Whitehall on Tuesday morning to meet with this guy. Because he said, look, tell me about what you're doing. Tell me about what's going on in your churches. And uh, we were praying for Martin this week. And, we were, and somebody had a prophetic word for him about, be who you are. Don't try to be someone else. Because, uh, you know, he's going into the corridors of power, representing us. And we saying, look, just be yourself. Be who God has made you to be in that situation. So can I ask you, actually, as, as a side note, please pray for him on Tuesday. This is a very significant meeting. So please pray for Martin on, on Tuesday morning uh, and the others, other representatives as well as they meet with this government minister uh, and, and talk about what, what we're doing together, talk about what's going on in our sort of churches across the UK. But for Martin, we were saying to him, you can be who God has made you to be. It, it, you have to be somebody else. You have to put somebody else's armour on, if you like. If you remember David, when he went to fight Goliath, Saul tried to give him his armour and say, You need to wear this now. But it didn't work for David. And we were saying to Martin, Just, just be who you are. Be who God has made you to be. He's got you ready for, for this and other things in the future. And, and God will say the same to us this morning Be who you are. Be who God has made you to be. And that will be true, you see, of Daniel. Daniel was true to God, to who God had made him to be. And that applied to every area of his life, and it certainly applied to his, his work life. So let's read through Daniel chapter 4. It's quite a long chapter, but uh, I think we need to read the whole thing to get an overview of it, and then we'll draw out one or two truths from it in, uh, in just a moment. So Daniel chapter 4. King Nebuchadnezzar, to the peoples, nations, and men of every language who live in all the world... So that's quite a lot of people, isn't it? So now Nebuchadnezzar is addressing, it's like an open letter we'd call it, isn't it? So he's addressing everybody that's going to read this or, or hear this letter. He's saying, May you prosper greatly. It's my pleasure to tell you about the miraculous signs and wonders that the Most High God has performed for me. How great are his signs, how mighty his wonders. His kingdom is an internal kingdom. His dominion endures from generation to generation. I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at home in my palace, contented and prosperous. I had a dream that made me afraid. As I was lying in my bed, the images and visions that passed through my mind terrified me. So I commanded that all the wise men of Babylon be brought before me to interpret the dream for me. When the magicians, enchanters, astrologers and diviners came, I told them the dream, but they couldn't interpret it for me. Finally, Daniel came into my presence and I told him the dream. He is called Belteshazzar after the name of my God and the spirit of the Holy God is in him. I said, Belteshazzar, chief of the magicians, I know that the spirit of the Holy God is in you and no mystery is too difficult for you. Here is my dream, interpret it for me. These are the visions I saw while lying in my bed I looked, and there before me stood a tree in the middle of the land. Its height was enormous. The tree grew large and strong, and its top touched the sky. It was visible to the ends of the earth. Its leaves were beautiful, its fruit abundant, and on it was food for all. Under it, the beasts of the field found shelter, and the birds of the air lived in its branches. From it, every creature was fed. In the visions I saw while lying in my bed, I looked, and there before me was a messenger, a holy one, coming down from heaven. He called in a loud voice, "'Cut down the tree and trim off its branches, "'strip off its leaves and scatter its fruit. "'Let the animals flee from under it and the birds from its branches. "'But let the stump and its roots, bound with iron and bronze, "'remain in the ground in the grass of the field. "'Let him be drenched with the dew of heaven, "'and let him live with the animals among the plants of the earth. "'Let his mind be changed from that of a man.'" and let him be given the mind of an animal till seven times pass for him. The decision is announced by messengers. The holy ones declare the verdict so that a living may know that the Most High is sovereign over the kingdoms of men and gives them to anyone he wishes and sets, it over, sets over them the lowliest of men. This is the dream that I, King Nebuchadnezzar, had. Now, Belteshazzar, tell me what it means, for none of the wise men in my kingdom can interpret it for me, but you can, because the spirit of the holy gods is in you. Then Daniel, also called Belteshazzar, was greatly perplexed for a time, and his thoughts terrified him. So the king said, Belteshazzar, do not let the dream or its meaning alarm you. He answered, My lord, if only the dream applied to your enemies and its meaning to your adversaries. the tree you saw, which grew large and strong, with its top touching the sky, visible to the whole earth, with beautiful leaves and abundant fruit, providing food for all, giving shelter to the beasts of the field, and having nestling places in its branches to the birds of the air, you, O King, are that tree. You have become great and strong. Your greatness has grown until it reaches the sky, and your dominion extends to a distant part of the earth. You, O king, saw a messenger, a holy one, coming down from heaven and saying, Cut down the tree and destroy it, but leave the stump bound with iron and bronze in the grass of the field, while its roots remain in the ground. Let him be drenched with the dew of heaven. Let him live like the wild animals until seven times pass by for him. This is the interpretation, O King. This is the decree the Most High has issued against my Lord the King. You will be driven away from people and will live with the wild animals. You will eat grass like cattle and be drenched with the dew of heaven. Seven times will pass by for you until you acknowledge that the Most High is sovereign over the kingdoms of men and gives them to anyone he wishes. The command to leave the stump of the tree with its roots mean that your kingdom will be restored to you when you acknowledge that heaven rules." Therefore, O king, be pleased to accept my advice. Renounce your sins by doing what is right and your wickedness by being kind to the oppressed. It may be then that your prosperity will continue. All this happened to King Nebuchadnezzar. Twelve months later, as the king was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon, he said, Is not this the great Babylon I have built as the royal residence by my mighty power and for the glory of my majesty? Words were still on his lips when a voice came from heaven. This is what is decreed for you, King Nebuchadnezzar. Your royal authority has been taken from you. You will be driven away from people and you will live with the wild animals. You will eat grass like cattle. Seven times will pass by for you until you acknowledge that the Most High is sovereign over the kingdoms of men and gives them to anyone he wishes. Immediately what was said about Nebuchadnezzar was fulfilled. He was driven away from people and ate grass like cattle. His body was drenched with the dew of heaven until his hair grew like the feathers of an eagle and his nails like the claws of a bird. At the end of that time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes towards heaven and my sanity was restored. Then I praised the Most High. I honoured and glorified him who lives forever. His dominion is an eternal dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the peoples of the earth are regarded as nothing. He does as he pleases with the powers of heaven and the peoples of the earth. No one can hold back his hand or say to him, what have you done? At the same time that my sanity was restored, my honor and splendor were returned to me for the glory of my kingdom. My advisers and nobles sought me out and I was restored to my throne and became even greater than before. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and exalt and glorify the King of heaven because everything he does is right and all his ways are just. And those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. So we've got here in Daniel chapter 4, a story of pride and punishment. It's my title for this morning, Pride and Punishments. And it's a first-person account, much of it. It's an open letter, as we've said, that Nebuchadnezzar is writing. It occurs, most commentators reckon, around 20 or 30 years after the events of Daniel chapter 3. And it starts with another dream. And if you know the book of Daniel, you'll read this and go, "Uh uh-oh, another dream. This is not going to be good. Because you'll remember the dream that Nebuchadnezzar had in Daniel chapter 2 and how that troubled him. Well now, sometime later, he gets another dream, again from heaven. And again, God is speaking to him. And again, he calls his advisors in, and surprise, surprise, his advisors are unable to interpret the dream to him. So what does he do? He gets Daniel in. And Daniel appears, and very quickly, Daniel realizes the significance of this dream. This is not good news for Nebuchadnezzar. Bear in mind, uh, in the sort of ancient times, if you'd said something that would upset the king, he would literally respond, off with your head. And that was it. Job done. You, you, you were finished. And so for Daniel there, you need to understand, this was not an easy assignment for him. He was there before the king, about to tell the king that he was going to lose his mind for seven years. He was going to live like a wild animal. animal. This was not a good message for Nebuchadnezzar to hear. You can imagine when Daniel was sort of standing there thinking, "Oh Lord, can you have given him a good dream, please, one of blessing?" And you know but he had to be faithful to what God had given him to do. And he was. He communicated very well what God was speaking to Nebuchadnezzar. And so we've got in Daniel four now Nebuchadnezzar's final appearance in Daniel, and it's him looking back, if you like, at what's happened to him. So this occurs now after. The dream has been fulfilled after these seven years. And Nebuchadnezzar has seen some encounters with God through Daniel. But as we've said before, encountering God through someone else is not enough. You have to encounter God for yourself. That's true for us. It was true for Daniel. And it was about to be true for Nebuchadnezzar. He had heard about God. He had met Daniel and heard about uh, all the things that he had done for Daniel. He'd even had some experience of being spoken to by the living God before. But now he was about to encounter him for himself. And friends, if you haven't encountered God for yourself, let me encourage you, even this morning, even now, as we spend these moments looking at this passage together, God wants to encounter you. Not just the person next to you, not just your friends, not the person in front or behind, but you. Every one of us this morning, God wants a relationship with you individually. He wants to break into your world. He wants to introduce himself to you. And that was true for Nebuchadnezzar. He wanted to break into Nebuchadnezzar's world and meet him. Powerfully and draw him to himself. And we'll see as we spend the remaining moments together looking through this chapter what happened and how he did that. So we're going to look at four R's this morning. We're going to look at rulers, reverence, repentance, and restoration. There we are. They're my four R's. Rulers, reverence, repentance, and restoration. So let's pray and then we'll spend some moments looking at this together. Lord Jesus, thank you for your presence with us this morning. Thank you, Lord, that you are a near God. Thank you that you desire to encounter us. Thank you that even as we worshipped you this morning, you came close to us. You encountered us afresh. You drew drew us to yourselves. You drew us to yourself, Lord. And thank you that's true of Nebuchadnezzar. Thank you that's true for us this morning. We pray as we spend these moments in this passage together that you would speak to us, O God. Speak to each of us individually. Speak to our heart. Draw us closer to you, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Okay, so our first R is one of rulers then. And so the lesson that God wanted to teach Nebuchadnezzar was that all authorities exist only by God allowing them to exist. They've been established by God. Now let's be clear, it doesn't mean that every authority is good. There's some pretty rotten ones, both in the Bible and even today in our contemporary world. But Nebuchadnezzar needs to know, and actually so do we, that any authority only exists because God allows it to exist. And at any moment, God can say, that's enough. It's over. It's finished with. It's the end. See, Nebuchadnezzar needs to know this or there'll be trouble. And there is trouble ahead for Nebuchadnezzar because he needs to learn this lesson. We don't have time to turn to it now, but in Romans 13, Paul talks about this. He says, Everyone must submit himself to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Paul makes it very clear to the church in Rome Peter puts it like this in 1 Peter 2. He says, Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human authority, whether to the emperor as a supreme authority or to governors who are sent by by him to punish those who do wrong and to commend those who do right. So the Bible makes it very clear. Any authority that we find in the world only exists because God allows it to. And at any moment, God can say, Enough. That's it. And the Bible encourages us, well, even commands us to submit ourselves to earthly authorities because God has instituted them. Now, the exception is obviously if what they say is contrary to God's law. So in Daniel chapter 3, we had the example, didn't we, of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego saying, well, I'm not going to bow down to this statue you've made because it's contrary to God's law. But when it doesn't cause us to disobey God's law... We need to be obedient to the authority that God has instituted. We need to pay our taxes, as Jesus put it. You know, give to Caesar what is Caesar's. But no human ruler, no power or kingdom goes on forever. I guess many of us would have studied at least to one degree or another history at school, wouldn't we? And we'd look at ancient civilizations. We'd look at the Incas, maybe. Or we'd look at different kingdoms or or powers and think, wow, they seem so powerful. Even the Roman Empire seemed so powerful, didn't it? But at some point, every single human ruler, power, or kingdom, every single one of them in human history has at some point crumbled. God has said, enough. And Nebuchadnezzar needs to learn the lesson now that his kingdom isn't going to go on forever. Actually, only God's kingdom goes on forever. Nebuchadnezzar puts it like this in verse 17. says, The Most High is sovereign over all kingdoms on earth and gives them to anyone he wishes and sets over them the lowliest of people. Nebuchadnezzar needed to learn that. See, God is on the throne. His kingdom is the only kingdom that will endure forever. He is the ultimate ruler of the nations. And sometimes authorities and governments and kingdoms, can, it can go to their heads. But there always comes a point where God says enough. See, God is the one that's on the throne. And this is on the throne for Nebuchadnezzar. And he's about to demonstrate that to Nebuchadnezzar. French is on the throne of your life as well. He's the one that's in charge. He is our great King, the Lord of all, Lord of heaven and earth. Is he on the throne in your life, or do you keep trying to take the throne back? You know, for, for many of us, it's like you know we um, we have a throne in our life. I'm sure it's more significant than than this, but let's use this as an example. And um, Adam, can you come up here, please? You can play God for a moment. For many of us, it's a bit like this. We put God on the throne of our life and we say God's going to be in charge. We're going to let him rule and reign. We've learned the lesson Nebuchadnezzar learnt and and we're going to allow God to reign in our life. And we say that and then after a while we come along and push God off. You can be pushed off now. Like so. And we go, I want it back. And it's like we wrestle God for the throne of our life back. And then we think, oh no, that was wrong and we give, give God his throne back again and God gets back on it. And it's okay for a while. And then something happens. Maybe something happens to us or there's a circumstance in our life. And again, we're like wrestling God for control back. We want the throne back in our life. We need to understand that the throne of our life belongs to God and God alone. Nebuchadnezzar needed to learn that lesson. And friends, so do we. We don't need to fight God for it. We shouldn't be the one sitting on it. Once we're following him, we should allow God to sit on the throne of our lives. Thanks, mate. You can go and sit down. Nebuchadnezzar needed to learn the lesson that God is on the throne. And whilst Nebuchadnezzar was a significant ruler and he had a huge kingdom, there was a time coming when God was about to say, enough. A year later, in fact, Nebuchadnezzar is in his royal palace looking over his gardens this is in verse 28, if you've got your Bible still open in front of you. And he was looking down over Babylon. Now, let's be clear Babylon was an amazing place. It was a cool city. You know, it would have been an exciting place to live. It would have been lots happening. It, his palace probably would have been built on, on the hillside, quite high up. He could walk on the flat roof of his palace, I guess, and overlook the city of Babylon. And bear in mind, Babylon had the hanging gardens one of the, uh, the seven, seven wonders of the ancient world, it would have been a tremendous view. One of the commentators says that Babylon would have been teeming with life, affluence everywhere, a bit like an ancient Las Vegas. That's what he says. But Nebuchadnezzar looks over this scene, and this is where it goes wrong for him. He looks over this scene, and his heart is filled with pride. And friends, that's dangerous. That is really dangerous. So verse 28, what does he say? Let's let's just recap it. Verse twenty-nine. Twelve months later, as the king was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon, he said, Is not this the great Babylon I have built as the royal residence by my mighty power and for the glory of my majesty? It's not going well, is it? God is about to say, Enough. Enough. Nebuchadnezzar looks down and is filled with pride. I'm sure you'll have heard the phrase attributed to uh, to Baron Acton that power corrupts, and absolute power corrupts absolutely. That's what happens to Nebuchadnezzar. We should honour God and not take praise that should be His. That's our second R. Oh, that's reverence. That's honouring God. Let's be clear. He is the creator. We are creatures. He deserves praise and majesty, honor and glory. We don't. And Nebuchadnezzar needed to learn this lesson. See, actually, we can even be proud of our faith in God. It's where it gets dangerous for us, and we can think, oh, I'm a Christian because it makes me a better person. And we can start to be proud of that somehow. And that kind of attitude puts God out of reach. What we should be saying is, I'm so grateful to God for his grace upon my life (laughs) and for all that he's doing in me, for all that he wants to accomplish through me. That's a different attitude to have, isn't it? See, pride is very dangerous. Bear in mind, it was pride that caused the angel Lucifer to sin and to fall from heaven. He becomes the devil. That's because pride got into his heart. So the Bible tells us. Another example in the New Testament will be King Herod. In, uh, in, in Acts chapter 12, you've got a, a, not a dissimilar situation, actually. So here's King Herod in Acts 12, 22. And uh, it says this. It says that his, uh, Herod was speaking to uh, to the people, delivering a public address. They shouted, this is the voice of a God, not of a man. And immediately, because Herod did not give praise to God... An angel of the Lord struck him down, and he was eaten by worms and died. That's not a good way to go, is it? <laughs> Doesn't sound like fun. Now, maybe you're not like Lucifer. At least I hope you're not. I hope you're not like Nebuchadnezzar or Herod. But there's still a danger here, isn't there? There's a danger for us. We need to be giving God reverence, worship, adoration, putting him on the throne. Of our life, if you like. See, we can be we can become like Nebuchadnezzar, particularly if our work has brought us some level of achievement. Maybe maybe we've done well. Maybe we've done well in our studies, for example. Maybe you've done well at work. Maybe maybe you know you're proud of a particular situation in your life. Well, I've done well here. You know, I've overcome some challenges. Maybe you know, I've got some things right, and we can become proud of what we've achieved. Actually, it's by the grace of God, isn't it? But we can let pride get into our hearts. You see, even we can become proud even of Christian ministry. We can become proud of what we've achieved. There's a danger there, friends. It's a danger. Pride is subtle. It creeps up on you. It's unexpected. You you never plan for it. But it's just waiting around the corner, waiting to capture your heart. Because Satan knows if he gets into your heart with pride... Then he gets, he's got a lever. So let's, let's, let's watch out for this. Let's be careful. What's the solution? What's the antidote? Well, the solution is being humble. That's so what the solution is. That's the antidote to pride. It's humility. 1 Peter 5 says this, In the same way, you who are younger, submit yourselves to your elders. All of you clothe yourselves with humility towards one another, because God opposes the proud, but shows favor to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up in due time. Cast all your anxiety on him, because he cares for you. James put it like, puts it like this in James 4, verse 6. He says, but he gives us more grace. That's why scripture says God opposes the proud, but shows favor to the humble. Both of those writers, both James and Peter, they quote from Proverbs 3, where it says, he mocks the proud; he mocks proud mockers, but shows favour to the humble and oppressed. Do you get the idea? Get the trend? Get what God is saying here? Are you humble? The danger is being proud of your humility. So don't, don't be proud of your humility You'll miss the point somewhat. But you know, have you got a humble heart? Are you humble before God? How would you answer the question? How would your best friend or husband or wife answer the question about you? What might they say? about you we need to be aware that God is more than able to humble us and back in Daniel in verse 37 it says that everything he does is right and all his ways are just he's talking of God and those who walk in pride he is able to humble God is very able to humble us so my question is this Would you rather humble yourself or would you rather have God humble you? I want to suggest to you this morning a better deal might be that you humble yourself before God rather than God have to humble you. He will. If you don't do it yourself, that's what the Bible teaches us. because It's dangerous. Pride gets into our hearts. It mars our relationship with God. God needs to deal with it. Much better that we spot it ourselves. We walk in humility before God, in reverence before him, and humble ourselves. And as we do that, he lifts us up because his grace is sufficient for us. So I want to encourage us this morning to humble ourselves before God. Now, God gives Nebuchadnezzar a year to repent. That's, that's not bad going, is it? He gives, God, he gives Nebuchadnezzar some significant time to repent. God gives Nebuchadnezzar a chance to change his ways. Having heard this dream, having heard the judgment, Nebuchadnezzar could have changed his heart. Daniel, in fact, hopes it, doesn't he? He he urges Nebuchadnezzar to change and to repent uh, that God might not judge him like this. Now, it's typical of God to be slow to anger. God is slow to anger. It says in Psalm 103, The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love. Peter puts it like this in 2 Peter 3. He says, The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. See, God is patient. He does allow us time to repent. But let's be clear. There will come a time for judgment. That time to repent doesn't go on forever. Don't think that God just puts it off never to judge us. He is slow to anger. He does want everyone to come to himself. He, he does allow time to repent, but there comes a moment where God's righteousness means that he does not leave sin unpunished. And there does come a moment in time when God says, enough. So don't push it. Don't think you can play God off on this one. Because there comes a time when God says, enough. That's what happened with Nebuchadnezzar here. He spent seven years living like a wild animal, it seems, with his advisors, probably led by Daniel, uh, keeping his kingdom going, keeping his kingdom uh, in order. While Nebuchadnezzar is at the hands of God. He's been judged by God and found wanting. And uh, the dream is fulfilled. He's sent away, given the mind of an animal. He lives like an animal for seven years. He loses the mind of a man. His his fingernails grow. His hair grows. He loses the plot for seven years until he acknowledges the Lord Most High, and then God rest, rest, uh, returns his sanity to him. And Nebuchadnezzar was judged, and friends, so will we be. The Bible makes it clear: you and I will be judged. So, how will you fare? You know. Romans 14 puts it like this, Paul says, For we will all stand before God's judgment seat. It's written, As surely as I live, says the Lord, every knee will bow before me, every tongue will acknowledge God. So then each of us will give an account of ourselves to God. So there will come a day, there will come a time, there will come a moment in history, the Bible says, where every knee will bow. Even the knees that have not bowed out of choice on earth now will bow before God because everyone will recognize that He is the Lord, He is the, the God of all creation. But you see, God wants to lead you to repentance. But understand this, there will be judgments. So will you be able to stand before God and give a good account of your life? Have you commit, have you kept all His commandments? Have you, you kept all His standards? You've been obedient to Him? You know, how would you fare if that was how it was? Well, actually, we'll all have to stand before God and give an account. But the good news of the gospel is that Jesus says, well, if you follow me, if you've accepted me as your Lord and Savior, if we've uh, trusted in him, then when we stand before God having to give an account, God looks at us and doesn't see the sin in our lives, doesn't see everything that we've done wrong in us, but rather he sees the righteousness of Jesus. If if you've trusted in Jesus as your saviour, as your Lord, if you're following him, if you've given your heart to him, if you've said, Jesus, I want you to be Lord of my life, if you've put him on the throne of your life, as we talked about just a moment ago, then what happens in that day of judgment is God looks at you, doesn't see your sin, but sees all the good things that Jesus has done. I mean, what an amazing swap that is. All the rotten things that you and I have done, all our sin and rebellion against God... God looks, and all he can see in us is the beauty, the majesty, the glory, and the righteousness of Jesus. It's amazing, isn't it? That's the good news of the gospel. Now, you still need to give an account of how you've led your life. You know The things that God has given you to do, the gifts that he's put in you, how you've used those, how you've been faithful to those things, that won't affect your salvation, but the Bible talks about God giving rewards. He wants to reward you for faithfulness, for all that you've done. So you'll start to give an account for those things. But your salvation is secure if you trust in Jesus. If you haven't trusted in Jesus, it's not so good. Because the same standards apply. God says, well, have you kept all my you know, commands? Uh, Have you followed me faithfully? And if you haven't trusted in Jesus, he looks at you and doesn't see the righteousness of Jesus. He sees everything you've done wrong. And at that moment in time, there's an eternal judgment. You see, if you haven't asked Jesus to pay the price for your sin, then you will need to pay the price for your sin. And the Bible describes that as eternal separation, eternal judgment, uh, eternal separation from a a loving and merciful God. The Bible calls that hell. So what what will it be for you? This morning do you know that, to use a phrase from the Bible, that your name is written in, in God's book, the Lamb's book of life. Is your name written in there? Have you trusted in Jesus? Because if you have, in that day of judgment, God will look at you and see all that Jesus has done right. My hope for all of us, my hope for you all this morning is that you have done that and you're walking in the good of it and remaining faithful to Jesus as you live for him. But the final R before we finish is one of restoration. Restoration. On that final day, the judgment will be issued to those who haven't accepted Jesus as their Lord and Savior. That will be an eternal judgment. However, Whilst you're still living on this earth, whilst you still have breath in you, God wants you to follow him. And he's giving you an opportunity, even this morning, to do so. That's God's mercy, allowing you time to repent. But as his children, he disciplines us. Nebuchadnezzar was disciplined, wasn't he? For seven years, he had to live like a wild animal until he acknowledged that the Lord was God. It wasn't that God was just punishing him, somehow meting out vengeance on him, but rather God was disciplining him in order that he might follow him. That's what was going on. Revelation 3, uh, 19, Jesus says, Those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. So be earnest and repent. Hebrews 12 talks about a similar thing. So God, God disciplines us. As his children, he disciplines us. Those of, you, those of us who are parents, we discipline our kids, don't we? Because we want them to, to grow up in, in a right way. It's not that we somehow enjoy meeting out a punishment, but we, we know that discipline for them is good and right and what they need, actually, in order to grow up in, in a right way. And God knows that that's what we need as well. Nebuchadnezzar needed to learn that there's only one true God. The ancient world had many gods. Actually, it's not too dissimilar from today. Nebuchadnezzar needed to learn there's only one true God. I wonder, what do you need to learn this morning? What might God be teaching you, maybe even now? One of the commentaries describes this passage in Daniel chapter 4. It summarizes it this. It says, learning the hard way. Nebuchadnezzar had to learn the hard way. What about you? What lessons do you need to learn? Is God going to have to humble you? Or will you humble yourself? What's the antidote to pride? Well, we've said it already. It's reverence, It's humility and it's worship. See, worship isn't just about the singing of songs. It's about putting God on the throne of your life. I want to encourage us to do that this morning. Perhaps the band could come up, please, as we we close. Put God on the throne of your life. Make God first in your life. That's a lesson that Nebuchadnezzar needed to learn. He needed to learn that God wanted to be number one in his life. And that was the right place for God to be. Because he's the creator and we're his creatures. But God also knows that that's the best for us because he knows that if he's on the throne of our lives, if we're putting him first, he knows that's the best position for us to be in as well. So it's not that we serve some sort of egotistical God who just wants that for his pleasure, but rather he knows that that's best for us. If you're a parent, you know what's best for your children. Sometimes they'll disagree with you. They might argue with it. They might not think they need to go to bed right now. But you know that they do. And friends, it's the same with us and God. God knows what is best for us. And somehow, he, sometimes he needs to discipline us to teach us that. But let's make sure we put God on the throne of our life. Let's put him first. Let's stand together. We'll pray and uh, then we'll sing in just a moment. But can we stand? I'm going to pray as we close. The band is going to lead us in a song in a moment. And uh, we'll have a few moments to pray for one another before we finish. Father, thank you for this account we have in Daniel 4 here. Thank you that... Uh, You wanted to break into Nebuchadnezzar's life and show that you are God. And thank you, Lord, that your heart hasn't changed. You want to break into lives even today and demonstrate that you are God and that you love your children. Thank you, Lord, for your love. Thank you for your grace upon our lives. Thank you, Jesus, that as we trust in you, In that day of judgment, God looks on us and sees not all the things we've done wrong, but Lord Jesus, all the things you've done right. Your righteousness and purity, your holiness and majesty. Thank you for that great exchange, Lord. And so Father, we want to pray right now that God, you would be on the throne of our lives. Lord Jesus, that we would be humble before you, that we would humble ourselves rather than you have to humble us. God, that you would draw us to yourself. I pray even this morning, God, draw people to yourself afresh. Demonstrate your love and your grace, your goodness and your mercy once again, please. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.